everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. It is the middle of Magneto month. We are having so much fun on the show. And today is what we're going to call a very special episode of Grey Malkin Lane. <laughs> now, I have not been shy about sharing portions of my story on this show, which uh, heavily involved being raised in uh, Mormonism. And I've been shocked as I have met other comic book professionals and comic book fans to come across people with very similar but distinctive, uh, distinctively different stories from mine. Three of those friends are here with me today, so we're going to call this the post-Mormon episode of Grey Malkin Lane. Uh, so as we frame this uh, this conversation today, we're going to call it the post-Mormon episode of Grey Malkin Lane. There's going to be perhaps some uh, trauma sharing and or some poking fun at religion and or talking about the liberation of leaving things behind. It will be very X-Men focused as well, but for any listeners uh, who may have conservative belief sets, this is your warning uh, as far as the sharing in today's episode uh, may not be for everyone, which is entirely okay. I am uh, thrilled to welcome three of my dear friends through this show, both uh, in real life and and online. Uh, Philip Seavey, Terry Blass, and Amanda Martini. Thank you all for being here. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And your question coming into today is, name a Mormon belief that is so weird it may be odd in an X-Men comic book. <laughs> Let's begin with uh, Philip Seavey. Hi, Philip. Hey, Chad. Uh, I'm Philip CV. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I've been working in comics for close to 10 years, uh, primarily as an artist, but I've done quite a bit of writing as well. As it relates to this podcast, uh, some of the work that I've done that people might know me from is I've done a series of X-Men Unlimited issues that I've drawn. Uh, I've kind of been bouncing around X-Men Unlimited stuff. I'm currently drawing a story for Deadpool 7 Slaughters, which will be out in November. Um, so yeah, yeah, bouncing around Marvel and the X-Men office these days, and I'm getting ready to kind of jump back over to there. I've been over in Spider-Man and superheroes for the past six months, but I'm excited to get back to my merry band of Marvel mutants. I just um, read your, I just reread you and Zach Thompson's Unbreakable arc on X-Men Unlimited last night. So good, man. You're just oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm excited for what's coming next that probably by this time won't be announced yet, but shortly thereafter, I think everyone hey. will enjoy what we're doing. So um, <clears throat> yeah, so a, a weird Mormon belief that is probably too much for the X-Men. And it's like, I'll try and be quick about this because it's such like a larger conversation. But I think as one thing that might come up in this discussion is more, uh, more so than a lot of standard Protestant, evangelical, Christian uh, religions, Mormonism is deeply entrenched in racism and homophobia, as well as misogyny. Um, Mormonism has a really unique space in the uh, racism aspect of Christianity. There are a lot of like uh, Protestant Christian churches who will use the curse of Cain doctrine as a way and as a justification for being racist against those of people of African descent, which is horrible in and of itself. Mormonism was like, let's add a couple more flavors to that where they decided that the reason um, Native Americans exist and have different color skin pigmentation is because God cursed them. They were once white Jews who lived in America, and because they were not good, God made them their skin color dark and loathsome so that the white people would avoid them, which is a horrendously awful racist thing. 
um, to double and triple down on that. In the 1950s and 60s, led by, or an initiative led by a church leader who later went on to be the prophet of the church, a guy named Spencer W. Kimball, he started what, what was termed the Lamanite Placement Program where they would go into indigenous communities and essentially take the children of the indigenous communities, foster and adopt them out to white families in Utah, because that would give them, I don't know, better opportunities and or expose them to righteousness because the belief that he preached is, as these people would be more quote unquote righteous, more Mormon, their skin would lighten and they would become whiter. Um, and in a general conference, so general conference is uh, a gathering held twice a year for Mormons uh, where all the leaders get together and they share messages and talks and indoctrination. Uh, there's a quote, I don't have it exactly here, but he essentially is like, I've seen pictures of Lamanite, which is the term that they use to describe indigenous Native Americans. Um, I've seen Lamanite children sitting next to their parents and they are shades lighter than their parents because their righteousness is making them more white and delightsome. So being that the metaphor for mutants uh, and X-Men is often uh, associated with uh, race or, um, or sexual identity and gender identity, having a, a Mormon belief that even though that belief is not as emphasized anymore, they've never said, we don't believe that anymore. Sorry, we fucked up big time. We're terrible, awful people. They just pretend it didn't happen. Um, like that feels like a belief that's just too far for X-Men. They would never be like, if you know, if you guys try hard enough, you'll eventually be homo sapiens and your homo superiorness will fade from you. So I could I could take just what Philip said and talk for 10 minutes about let me explain the terms and the shifting doctrine and how complicated it is. <laughs> for listeners out there. We're just going to we're just going to talk and you can let me know if you need help looking something up. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, let me go over to Terry Blast next. Now, Terry and I did an episode on Birdie together that we released publicly where we got to talk a little bit about Mormon shit, but hi, Terry. It's good to see you. Hi. <clears throat> um, my name's Terry Blass. My pronouns are he, him. Um, I mean, I don't care what pronouns you use, though. Like, if you're like, hey, girl, like, I don't care. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess the work you might know for me that's related to Marvel would be, um, I, I suppose, Reptile or the um, Nova or Light Brigade Runaways series that I did for the Marvel Unlimited app. Um, I also did do a, like a short X-Men story in um, one of the Marvel voices. Good Judy. Um, yeah, called Good Judy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that I guess would be what you might know some of my stuff from. Um, Philip completely stole my strange Mormon belief <laughs> as a Mexican. That's the one that I felt like I should have. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so um, I guess thinking on the fly real quick. Um, the only other thing I can come up with that I think would be so bizarre that any of the X-Men might be like, wait a minute, what did you say? Um, is that Mormons believe that the Garden of Eden was in Jackson County, Missouri. Near um, where I grew up. The the <laughs> home of the American Jazz Museum. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's I guess that's where they think it was. But um, there have been, been stranger things, I guess. So... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go with that one. 
Terry that would be like if they were they were like Krakoa is an Ohio guys. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Terry is also the creator and writer of the recent character Ambrose, who's been on the unlimited stuff. Uh check that stuff out. It's it's really good. There's a lot of really wonderful things happening. Uh Terry, it's great to see you. And then over to my friend Demanda Martini. Hello, Demanda. Hello, I'm Demanda Martini. Uh this is my, I don't know, twelve hundredth. <laughs> time being being on the show like seven don't like exaggerate seven. um <laughs> uh so i'm a uh washington dc based drag queen cosplayer uh etc 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 um so my family uh, my family is from utah from a little small town just south of uh, salt lake city uh and uh, a belief that would would shock the x-men so uh, like i think this is so crazy that i actually think the x-men might be like no i think you're onto something <laughs> like this sounds right where like after you die you then get to like rule your own planet and i feel like with Araco, they are like wait i feel like you're <laughs> onto something like i feel like something like this is true but also to quote the uh animated x-men series like with what philip was saying when storm is just like skin color based prejudice how quaint <laughs> they're just like she's like oh so you guys might be racist but i'm still gonna have a planet so i guess will like be into this. The real direct allegory where there would be Professor X living on Araco and promising all the other X-Men if they were good enough X-Men, then he would give them their own Araco, but really <laughs> it would never happen. Uh, right. Lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys know me as the host of this show and Mormonism is an enormous part of my story. Not only have I uh, published a memoir called Gay Mormon Dad, I'm currently adapting it into a graphic novel and the art's coming in and it's so beautiful and I'm really happy. But this is a huge part of my story. There's there's an element, and I'm going to get into the rest. I'm going to lead this in. There's an element of insular Mormon communities, particularly in Utah, Idaho, and some other places where Mormonism for certain people is their entire world. It's not their belief system only. It's their culture. It's their family heritage. It's the thing their grandparents and grandparents and grandparents before them did. There's all this stuff baked in. And leaving Mormonism, which is also something we're going to talk about today, is actually a really difficult thing to do. And then once you're out, you look at Mormonism almost as if it's this great work of fiction that has like just pervaded millions of people. But from the outside, you realize that that community you were part of is like less than half of 1% of like the population of anything. And you're just like, how did I get so lost in it? So the weird part about Mormonism for me that I'm going to bring up, the weird belief structure, when I was in high school, as likely all of you did, there was a whole hour of religious instruction because my community was like Mormon. So like uh, my my high school was not Mormon, but you would leave the, you would leave high school. Like I'd have history class and then I'd have band class. And then I'd like walk across the street to the seminary building and have a religious lecture and then come back and go to like government class or whatever. And the lessons would be shit like, uh, like if an angel appears to you while you're sleeping tonight, uh, you don't know if it's an angel from God or from the devil unless you shake its hand. And if you shake its hand and feel flesh, then it will be a, a God angel. But if you don't feel flesh, it's one of the devil's angels trying to trick you. And I never fucking saw an angel, but this is like this weird shit you grew up believing. So we're gonna we're gonna get lost in it today. Mormonism to me is a lot of different things. It's the ultimate American religion because it formed in like the 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 early like 
formation period of America where it's like freedom of religion and it like really distinguished itself from other eras of Christianity by launching a new book of scripture, uh, the Book of Mormon, which I would not recommend reading, but go see the musical on Broadway. <laughs> You'll have all you need to know, although it's relatively irreverent. Uh, Mormonism largely stayed quiet. Uh, like, uh, information was not readily available to members until the advent of the internet. And now people are like, oh, holy shit, I click on this and realize this is really corrupt and this is all sorts of crazy. But if we look at it as a work of fiction, there's also a lot of weird things from Mormonism that transcend into storytelling. So I'm going to frame our conversation around a few different things today. And I would love for you all just to kind of share your stories as we go. One thing inherent to fictional stories and to the X-Men universe is the concept of prophecy. And in Mormonism, there is this idea that there is one old man who has been called of God who, like, talks to Jesus and, like, gives prophecy and, like, tells people what God wants and how to follow all the rules. And it comes down to, like, the individual male members of the church, not the female members, can also, like, use some of this power through their priesthood to, like, lay their hands on people and give them blessings and also many sort of, like, forms of prophecy. And there's, like, this Holy Ghost that's, like, in the heart of everyone that, like, guides you toward particular places, which is kind of like the Force from Star Wars. Like, there's, <laughs> there's all these different ideas from fiction that transcend into the things I grew up believing, but I also believed in fictional universes where that stuff would never feel real. So let me start out uh, by introducing the topic of prophecy. I would love to hear some of your thoughts on so, your former belief systems and how it shaped you. So so the whole prophecy thing. So I, I was already like one foot out the door when I went to college. So again, so my family's from Utah, but they moved to the Washington DC area when I, like right after I was born. So I've pretty much grown up on the East coast. Um, so, but I, so I was already like one foot out the door, but when I went to college, I went to college in Utah. I went to Utah state university because I didn't have the option to take a class period for seminary. I had to go to early morning seminary and I, so I had to go before school. So I was like, Fuck that. I'm not going to that. But anyway, um, but when I went to college, the prophet came out and said that girls are only allowed to have, it was revealed to him, girls are only allowed to have one piercing in each ear and boys are not to have any piercings. As someone who had three up my ear in my cartilage, two on the other side. Oh my God, God a, was so mad at you. And a, and a brand new nose piercing. Like, I mean, like two weeks before this revelation came out, I remember sitting in the church building. So I went to the singles ward in, uh, in at school and I just felt everyone, like after that was said, everyone just kind of go, look back at me. And I was like, what? I was like, this is bullshit. I was like, this sounds absolutely crazy. Like, what? Like, aren't there bigger and like other things to worry about other than the fact that I have a hole in my nose? I was like, this? I'm like, Jesus is who is like dealing with like famines and diseases and wars. And he's like, mm, but you shouldn't have any piercings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Terry, what are your thoughts here? I mean, much like Demanda, I had early morning seminary. Um, another prominent comic book artist who I won't name, uh, she and I had seminary together and our last names were very close together. So the pictures they took of us that they put up on the wall, we did like a Romeo and Michelle style one, like together. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I was. I also kind of had like one foot out the door. Demanded the prophet saw you with those piercings, and that's why that prophecy came about because he just thought that was too much. He just um, saw me. Yeah, I. I like to tell people that, in my opinion, Mormonism is what happens when you're a teenager in the old timey days, and you're so bored plowing fields that after your like fifteenth reread of the Bible, you just start writing fantasy fan fiction, and like your family and friends are a little too supportive <laughs> you know like <laughs> i think there's going to be i think there's going to be horses in this in this american world and silk and things that definitely weren't here um <laughs> but but yeah because i kind of had checked out i i attribute that a little bit to um being i guess bicultural biracial because at a young age i remember lessons in church about um, you know, like the homosexual lifestyle is a sinful choice or whatever, right? And I I remember thinking like, well, I didn't choose who my parents are. Like not in a negative way. I'm very proud of being Mexican and Mexican-American. But I thought like, well, if I didn't choose that, like a choice is definitely something like you're given the option, right? Like oatmeal or waffles for breakfast. <laughs> so, so when I was starting to ha- like have crushes on other boys, I was like, well, that's to me, that's not really a choice. So this can't be true for me. Like that's this can't be right. So I was in the sunken place for like, I don't know, 15, 16 years, just like had checked, just checked out, waiting for the time when I knew that like my mission would be over. So that literally when I finished my mission, I flew back to Idaho, I bought a car, I drove to LA, and then I never went to church again. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. <laughs> um, but I did have to go on one just because. Um, I felt obligated and pressured to my parents Mulan style were like, you will bring dishonor to this family if you don't, you know, um, but granted for two years, I would like look in the mirror, like, who is that girl I see? Um, like when will my reflection show? Um, but yeah, I don't hey know. Girl, hey. kind of a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll show who I am inside. Um, but yeah, so I just kind of always kind of checked out. Um, it, I say that, but like, it is difficult to sort of reconcile that like these strange prophecies, these things that are sort of ingrained into you as a child, like, I would say I believed them, but I also didn't believe them. Like, that was just like, now I have to look back on things like the Book of Mormon, the way I see the Bible. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, these are like the fairy tales that I, you know, was given growing up. And some people may not like that I say that, but that's how I have to have, how I have to view it, I guess. My kids ask me to tell them Bible stories all the time because they find them ridiculous. I'll be like, let's talk about Jonah and the whale. And they're like, what? <laughs> there is a new novel called Whale Fall about a guy that gets swallowed by a whale. It's arriving tomorrow and I can't wait to read it. <laughs> it's like the novel of the summer that I didn't read this summer. But that novel is false and Jonah's story is true. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, Philip, uh, do you have any answers here? Uh, yeah, no, similar to what you were saying there about your kids. Mine, I, it was one of the greatest, like, proud parent moments when my son was like, who's Noah? And I was like, yes, <laughs> you don't know this shit, but... It's not like part of who you are. No, it's funny. I mean, as far as it relates to like prophecy, it's funny. Mormonism preaches this big concept of the leaders are prophet, seers, seers as in seers, seers and revelators. It's this big special title that we give to these leaders. They talk to God. It's literal Mormon belief is their leaders talk to God and, and give us what God says. And yet, if you look back at the last 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 some odd years, no prophet has ever prophesied anything. 
they have not revealed anything. They have not foreseen anything. They have fully admitted to not seeing it. Like COVID, obviously, it was a huge impact on the world. And the leader of the church was like, who could have seen this coming? And it was like, dude, you could have Maybe seen this you. coming, bitch. Yeah, you could have <laughs> saved millions of people. And this concept of like, well, you know, it's, it's a test of faith. I was like, motherfucker, you want to tell people like, hey, this is what's coming and save millions of lives and so much pain and think. Think of the impact that would do in Mormonism and your bottom line, because the church is just a corporation that makes money. So that concept of like, these men are prophets and they prophesy, like the most, the thing they've closest ever come is this statement they made in 1990. I want to say it's 1995, might have been 96. It was called the Proclamation to the World. It was just basically... Wait, wait I didn't have to make one quick sound effect. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so it's just this big statement where they basically entrench and reaffirm their belief in the heteronormative uh, kind of cisgendered nuclear 1950s family because so much of the church today is built in 1950s conservatism if you look at their history but it is it is it is just milk toast standard bullshit homophobia language there's nothing new there's nothing exciting there's nothing revelatory um, and if you look at the history of what happened, the whole reason they created this document was to use as a legal standing to file amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, in any type of legislation or lawsuit that was against uh, civil rights for queer people. Um, so the closest thing they've come to saying we prophesied something was a legal document they can use to take away the rights of queer people. And it's like this this is the best you could do in this world when, yeah, there's famine, there's plague, there is death, there is war, there is misery and destruction all around you. And the best you could come up with is a way to fuck over gay people. And it's just so much of like this concept of, of prophecy and, and, and prophesying and kind of what they actually use their power and money to is a big uh, way a big opening for me to kind of exit the church, and I was actually a very, very devout person for in, well into my thirties. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't like a like question mark kind of raise my eyebrow growing up. It was like I'm all in, I'm all in, I'm all in. Until one day I was like, nope, I am a hundred percent out. This is just all it is done is used to make money and and hurt minoritized groups of people. So yep, Jesus is definitely in charge of this movement. <laughs> Now, nearly every really popular story in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon involves some sort of person who is, like, misunderstood, who's just trying to, like, believe God's stuff, like, trying to proclaim the word, and then, like, rising up above the popular culture because they end up having some sort of superpower granted by God in order to get people in line, which is a fascinating thing. It's this very messianic journey. And almost every work of fiction that we really love shares a similar vibe. Harry Potter and uh, Luke Skywalker, and that transcends into the Marvel Comics universe as well. Now, this idea, and I'm going to use Harry Potter as the template here, this idea of Harry Potter growing up with the Dursleys and literally being shoved in the closet and, like, not knowing who he was until he found out the things that they were teaching him his whole life were false, and he leaves it all behind and discovers this, like, very magical, complicated world. And I know there's all the controversy around uh, J.K. Rowling, but I, uh, I still think it's a really transcendent story because then we also have the messianic journey of, which is like the Christ story of this kid rising up and uh, and conquering. The X-Men have a hundred versions of that story as well. But this idea of leaving behind what you uh, what you were taught was truth 
And then finding your hero's journey and your found family on the way is very much the concept of the other, which is interesting because growing up, I always thought I was the other. The Mormons were the other. We were the ones that were misunderstood until I realized they were the ones that oppress us. And this is the framework for my second question for you guys. Almost um, almost every major group that fights the X-Men is some sort of oppressive church or government organization that has weaponized this, these concepts of truth and small-mindedness to fight against oppressors and the other. Tell me what your journey from uh, from the closet into Hogwarts, <laughs> or or from uh, from believing in one thing to rising above. I would love to hear a little bit about your journey through that, if you're all willing to share. Uh, Demanda, will you start this one? Sure. So, um, as I said. Uh, uh, I was in college. So the funny thing, you know, you bring up like the whole hero's journey. Uh, one of my classes in college was literally studying Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and like reading it. And then like Terry just saying that, you know, the book of Mormon is pretty much just Bible fan fiction. Like I was <laughs> like, Oh my, I was like, why? I, I was like, for, so the, the teacher that I had, she was a, she was a very cool lady, but her whole thing was um, how uh, hero's journeys, typically have a male protagonist and she was wondering whether or not uh, fiction with a female protagonist also follows like the hero's journey and the wizard of oz (laughs) no no so so not wizard of oz but like things like things like jane austen stories or um trying to remember what some of the other dorothy is a girl (laughs) yeah so so it's like the, the wizard of oz for sure but she was talking more about like especially um jane austen uh uh weathering heights so, so, you know, so, so stuff like that. And really, we found that it doesn't because women have a different journey because women have a different sense of community. But yada, 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 yada. But it's, it's just wild to me how, uh, like, Mormons sort of, like, hang on to, like, this hero's journey, which is why I think so many Mormons are nerds. Um, like, why, some, why, like, Star Wars is almost universally popular across any sort of group of Mormons that I've ever met in my entire life. Um, it's, it's just, it's just wild to me. So like my like journey out of the darkness, um, I mean, it probably started when I was really little, like I really didn't like going to, to classes in at, at, at church when I got to be about 12 is when they start separating. So like growing up in primary, like primary was fine. I didn't mind primary, especially like give me a CTR ring. Oh, I go to a class where they give me jewelry. Like I'm in, <laughs> but, but then when they started separate separating us by gender and boys go to this class, girls go to this class. Like I just like something about it just didn't feel right. I didn't, I didn't like it. Um, And like, you know, like most teens I was like "Mm, I don't want to do the things that my parents tell me whatever whatever but I just remember sitting in some of these classes and hearing the things that that they were trying to teach us and I was just like this sounds dumb but one of one of my favorite things which again my parents got a talking to so we're learning about the levels of heaven so for those of us who aren't aware there's the <laughs> telestial the terrestrial and the celestial kingdoms in heaven and it's all about like how holy you are and how amazing you are in life as to which level you which level you go to and then there's the outer darkness where you're just alone forever 
And I remember sitting, I was probably like 13 or 14 at the time, and them talking about the levels of heaven. And so they went around the room to say, well, which level of heaven do you want to get into? And I was just like, I don't know. The telestial sounds fine. Like, the stars are cool. Like, I'm I'm fine with that. And they're like, what do you mean you don't want to go to the celestial kingdom? I'm like, well, it's still heaven, right? Like, it's still like heaven and like whatever. And the, you don't want to spend the rest of eternity with your family. And I was kind of like, no <laughs> like I, I was like no I don't necessarily want to spend it with them but also like at that time being like I want to spend time with my friends like I don't want to do this so my parents got a, like a full talking to about how like I wasn't following along with like the norms or whatever by the time I got to be like older high school um I had stopped going to classes altogether instead my mom was called to the primary which is like the the, the kids um stuff and so i would just help mom and like i would help run singing time and i would make like the little posters again i i'm assuming it's universal amongst mormons but like you know like the little cards that have the words and you make little symbols for some of the words yeah, yeah, and so yeah. i would so i would make those for my mom to and then have you know hold, hold those up in in primary and then eventually they tried to call me to be like the primary singing leader like when i turned 18 even though i was only there for like another few months before i went to college um but like i also refused to wear like a white shirt and tie like i was not that kid i wore like polos or like button-up shirts that were colors or like i just hated all of those things and um yeah and then by the time i got to college i remember i tried to do the whole singles ward thing and like go with my because i lived with my cousin and like go to like the singles ward and like so you went to like uh uh family prayer after or ward prayer after um church on sunday and then on wednesday nights you had like required family home evening and i remember them trying to like call me to like be like the family home evening leader because they're like oh well, you're a theater major like you'll like you you love putting together activities and stuff and just everything about it just felt wrong and i remember just being very like being in utah but not being from utah was at least not being perceived as being from Utah because I didn't like grow up there. Um, it was very polarizing. So it was either I wasn't good enough to hang out with like the good Mormon kids or I wasn't bad enough to like really hang out with the bad kids. And the good kids were going to judge me regardless of if I was good enough or not. But the bad kids, at least if like I hung around with them, they weren't like super judgy. So I started smoking and drinking and doing what people do. And, um, and yeah, and so like it just it just made sense. And then when I eventually came out to like no one's shock, um, except for my parents, um, it was just it just everything just sort of like started making sense. Um, but yeah, like that. So it really by the time from like middle school to high school, and then like maybe six months into college, I was like, none of this makes sense. I think I'm out. So I'm going to take this one next really quickly. When I was growing up, it was not in Utah at all. I was in Missouri, where Mormons are often pretty hated, actually. But there was this really strong cultural presence. When you're a baby, they basically say, we're going to like map out your whole life. And if you don't follow this path, there's like a ton of shame that goes along with it. Leaving Mormonism and coming out is a huge act of bravery for anybody because leaving it the way that Mormons are taught this, you are giving up your identity within your family. Like your family after you die will go on and still be family, but you will no longer be part of it. You're literally choosing to sever yourself from bonds. 
And there's a lot of Mormon families that will disown or dis or, or distance themselves from kids who leave. It's 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 leaving behind not only community and like purpose, but you're literally like severing these ideas. There's a reason I got married and had kids. <laughs> that's literally because that's the the story I was told. So my eventual leaving, you're you're kind of taught to believe all of it or none of it. Like so, if you if you believe one thing and all of it's true. And the older I got and the sadder I got, I was 32 when I finally came out. And there was this realization of, I am not broken. And they keep telling me that I'm broken. And I was a mental health professional doing therapy for people. And it just kind of all came crashing down one day where I was like, okay, if I'm not broken, then, well, and then I kissed a boy and it was really nice. (laughs) I realized, oh, this feels good. And it was just kind of a confirmation of I am not a broken person. That means none of it is true. And so again, go read my book if you want the whole story. But uh, there's an intense process of liberation that happens here. Uh, let me go to Terry next on this one. Um, I I find it interesting that you brought up Harry Potter because I was talking to a student who that um, I was mentoring and talking about story. And I, I asked him, you know, if I were to tell you, oh, there's this popular story you know this kid finds out that they're special and they have special abilities and they get sent to a school to be with other people just like them what would you say and he was like oh harry potter and i was like well for me that's (laughs) x-men and if you were born like in the 80s or if you you know were watching a lot of tv in the 80s you would say fame (laughs) like you know like it's it's like a universal kind of story that i think gets told every once in a while which is why like you said i think likely comes from uh, biblical stories and a lot of things that we are given when we're younger. But um, my journey out of Mormonism, I think, w- was somewhat started, like I mentioned, when I finished my mission. I moved to California. I was living in Los Angeles. And I just pretty much stopped going to church. And I felt like I could start living my life the way I wanted to because I wasn't near anyone that I grew up with who was going to put me in a position where I had to um, still maintain that sense of like Mormon culture, um, if that makes sense. Um, So yeah, I just started kind of living my life the way I wanted to. The thing that I found that helped um, quite a bit, um, I was thinking about this when you were speaking because it it felt familiar, was after I did come out to my parents, um, I... (laughs) my mom stopped speaking to me and my dad was like, well, she just feels like now she's lost you. And you know, we're not going to be an eternal family and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, first of all, it's like our family can't stand to be in the same room for more than like 10 minutes together. So like eternity doesn't sound great to me. So no, thanks. Um, Second of all, I told my dad, I was like, I don't think you really, you and mom really believe that. And he wasn't offended, but he was more like, you know, of course we do. How could you say that? And I was like, well, if you love me and now you think you've lost me, then you aren't making the most of the little time that you think you do have with me, especially like mom, because, you know, um, and he he was like, I think you're right, which was pretty big for my colonel, you know, military Mormon (laughs) father to say to someone else. Um, And so that I think was pretty helpful because after that, I I think he probably spoke to my mom. She started coming around pretty quickly. but reminding myself, I think that I'm an adult is something I have to do quite a bit because when we're put in back in the context of visiting our parents or um, interacting with our parents, I think we we can easily just sort of 
slide back into that like mom what you know like we're a teenager again but um coming to town to visit family like with say with my husband you know i have to remind myself no i'm an adult and coming to town if you want to come see us and want to have a meal together and whatever you know great if not you don't um instead of like well but i'm coming to town and if you, you know i'd really like you to see so it's just i think reminding myself um that i don't believe that stuff anymore <laughs> and that's okay and i can create a boundary with my family that's more about do you want to be right or do you want to have a relationship with me uh excellent uh philip yeah, I think Mormonism is a system that is definitely designed for white, straight, uh, conservative, cisgender men. Um, so in that respect, like growing up, I was like prime candidate for Mormonism. It 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 worked for me entirely. Every system is set up to benefit that. Yeah, uh, and as as a side note, as a side note, the white cisgendered men are literally given superpowers through the priesthood, yeah. and then told they'll get a planet one day and lots of like hot wives if they do everything. <laughs> like it's it's very much a system of entitlement. But yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think that system the way in which it benefited me blinded me for a long time to the way it hurt everyone else. Um, and there's things along the way growing up, I was like, wait, why was it that, you know, uh, black people couldn't hold any priesthood or positions of power or things like that until 1978, which is like 25 years after Brown v. Board of Education and the civil rights movement began in full force. Um, or things like, why is it that women can't hold any positions of power or things like that? But it was just kind of like, well, that's because, you know, God's ways are not man's ways and we don't know the answers and we'll all understand someday. And it was like, oh, okay, sure, I guess. Um, and then as I, as I got older and, and started to experience the world and started to, you know, understand empathy a little bit better, perhaps, um, I started to see the way in which the church was hurting people and specifically uh, the queer community. Um, I didn't grow up in Utah, but I've been here for close to 20 years at this point. I moved here after my mission uh, and have never really left outside of grad school. Uh, and as, as Chad is aware, as we've talked, and I'm sure he might have mentioned it on this podcast, um, the uh, suicides among LGBTQ youth in Utah uh, are very, very high. As is um, the homelessness. As is the homelessness, like statistically just targeted at these groups of individuals. <clears throat> um, and it got to a point where as I started to notice this and as there started to be more discussion about this, um, and I was also teaching at an art college here in Utah for about five years. Um, so a lot of my students um, were, were LGBTQ. And as I got to just listen to their stories as they talked to each other, right? They didn't get up, these are 18 year old kids they didn't get up in front of class and like, let me tell you about my life. They were just talking about their lives with their uh, fellow students. And it was, um, I, I felt really bad that it, it took hearing someone's experience for me to begin to be able to very much look outside myself and see the way in which um, so many of these amazing kids' lives were just so difficult and so painfully affected by the way they were treated by their peers and by their family and by the the LDS communities around them. And I, I started to, to see that cognitive dissonance of like, if we are a church that proclaims that we are led by Jesus, like that is the, that is the edge we have over everyone else, right? They may be quote unquote playing church as some of the leaders have described other denominations, but we are the real ones because Jesus literally talks to our leaders. And I was like, we're doing all these things that are the exact opposite of what Jesus would do. 
Um, Jesus would never do things in such a way that would cause entire communities of children to uh, to feel it was better to die than to live um, uh, in a world and in a way which they can never truly be happy. And that's kind of a common refrain that I've heard from lots of LDS uh, queer youth of like, I can't live happy here, but I know that I'll be happy in the next life because the church has taught that I'll be straight and the church has taught that I'll be able to have all these things I can't have. So well, let me let me touch a side note really quickly. Please, please do. Utah, Utah formed as a state <clears throat> decades before it joined the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So it was its own empire, like in the wild, wild west in those days. And one of the laws they had on the books back then was something called blood atonement, where it was taught by Brigham Young the prophet that it was better to kill someone who had sinned by cutting their throat or killing them than to allow them to continue to sin because it would be more just. Uh, Mormonism in Utah particularly has a uh, a high amount of like shame and like use of antidepressants and suicidality, particularly in the LGBT community, but also for straight women and even straight men. This idea of uh, being taught constantly that if you're good enough, all your pain will go away and you'll have happy lives. And people have stress and emotion and it's never there. So it's just it, the, the mental health consequences here are enormous on top of that. So this idea of taking your life is very steeped into the culture. It's better to die than to continue to suffer or be broken. It's a really awful thing. Uh, but I, I do mental health. for <laughs> This is where I spend a lot of my time in my office. Uh, but, but keep going, Philip. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of those things kind of came together and it was uh, early 2015 and I was just hurting and I was just looking to the leaders and I was like, there's got to be something you can say. There's got to be something you can do. If you literally talk to Jesus, there's got to be a message that can help bring people together and heal the pain and brokenness instead of make it worse. And I was listening to a, a leadership conference from the members of the church and they did nothing but harp on the same bullshit they have for 50 years. And it was... It was anti-LGBTQ. It was the same generic lessons about praying and everything will be okay. And I'm like, this is an opportunity for you have to save people. Uh, and you were doing nothing but hurting people. And it really spiraled everything. And I spent about the next six months uh, uh, intensely focused on just this one thing, like an internal exploration of like, can we say that we're led by God when everything we do is anti-Christian? is anti-Jesus of the New Testament, not necessarily Christian as a denomination. Um, and it, yeah, eventually I, I came to the conclusion that like, no, we're not led by God. We're not led by Jesus. Um, and and kind of had to slowly part ways. And it was a, you know, a very painful and difficult deconstruction and realignment of my life. And it took years and years and years. And I wasn't really in a position where I was allowed to talk to anybody about it. It was three years before I could bring it up to anyone outside of a very, very small group of people. And even that that would cause fights and problems and dissensions. And, uh, and that, you know, that's the kind of the, the short of a really long story, but I was just like, there's no way that God can lead, so, can lead a group of people that hurt other people so much. So to kind of piggyback onto that, it's, yeah. so I, I, I'd mentioned in college, there was like the good Mormon kids and then there was like everybody else. And I, I can say that, Almost entirely, I would say 90% of the people that I went to college with are no longer members of the church. Uh, Almost, I would say, I would say, aside from I think like two that I can name off the top of my head, almost every uh, male identifying person that I went to school has come out as LGBTQ. (laughs) Like, not (laughs) like, um, 
So, so the reason I bring it up is like your story where you're like about 2015 when it's like things kind of came to a head with, with like uh, marriage equality and you know, that, that kind of stuff. A lot of my friends that I was friendly with in college, but not like friends with, um, not like people who I like wanted to talk to every day or whatever, but very nice people. Um, like all of them like started leaving the church. Like it was just like this domino effect. And so recently when I just was in Utah in January for a wedding, um, I had a dinner with a couple of those friends that I hadn't really seen or talked to in a long time. And um, one of them, uh, I won't mention her name, but uh, she was a very, we'll, we'll call her Molly. She was very much <laughs> Molly Mormon. She was very sweet, very lovely, just the kindest person to everyone, but still very, very devout. And she started teaching high school theater and getting in sort of like the Salt Lake City, like theater scene. And she very similar, just realized that, wait, wait, like my lives aren't like connecting and things just aren't making sense. And how can I believe this one thing about this and not, you know, but still have all these wonderful, beautiful people in my life. And so it, it's just, it was just so interesting to me that I, I honestly can't even think of one person. Well, no, I can think of one off the top of my head of the people that I went to school with that are still active in the church. Yeah. So uh, we're going to shift gears slightly to a more celebratory space for a moment. If you've heard some of my interviews, I've had Michael Elliott on the show twice. He's doing a study about the kind of, I'm using my words here, but the religion of fandoms. The way we find community and likeness and space. And the issue we're going to review in a minute is largely about community or the search for community. So we'll get there in a little while. Uh, so there is tie-ins, I promise. But I wanted to ask the question, uh, one of the places when my childhood trauma was really bad, I found a religious space within X-Men comics. There was an escapism for me. There was seeing people like me. There were stories being tell, told that arrested my mind, getting lost in the time travel and the prophecy and the crazy and the, the acceptance there. I think this is something transcendent for a lot of people. And this is why communities like the one on this show really works. But there are sub-communities within <laughs> communities of people who've been othered. And I think there is weirdly a group of people who were uh, once Mormon or part of strict belief structures who also find refuge among the X-Men. Uh, so quick question for everybody before we transition into issue review is what have the X-Men represented to you or comics or, or uh, sci-fi in general that allowed uh, you to find community, if you will? Uh, Terry, do you want to go first on this one? Sure. I think that um, being so drawn to the X-Men as a kid, like, you know, the Fox cartoon came out when I was like 12. So I took to that like a duck to water, I guess. But um, I think that what that did for me was it, it had a simple, um, in, in a way, a simple message of like, we're mutants, we're different. We don't want to be treated badly. Um you know, we didn't choose to be this way. So to me, that was something that was inherently, that I felt was true. So for me, X-Men comics, comic books in general, stories like um, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, things like that, to me, those things were far more real and true and resonant with me. So that, I think, is what became, for lack of a better way of saying it, my religion. Those things were more uh, religious to me and, th and sacred to me than like, 
this other thing that I already felt was like not that was not the tea. It was not <laughs> it was not great for me. Um, so yeah, I think that's what that kind of symbolized for me. I I think I always felt um, like they were very separate things. Like you you know like oh that doesn't have anything to do with my Mormonism or anything to do with the way I was raised or whatever. But um, clearly over the years you know you start to make these connections about why you were drawn to certain things and why certain stories have meant so much to you. And I think that they had a really big part um, to do with uh, the way that I like to tell stories and the things that I uh, gravitate towards. But I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. Oh, yeah. um, Yeah, I think that's what it kind of meant to me. Absolutely. Uh, Philip? Yeah, I think one of the things I've had to kind of start to dismantle as I'm an adult is kind of some of the toxic masculinity ideas about emotion and and uh, being vulnerable and things like that, which I, I could attribute a little bit to Mormonism, but I think there's something about just kind of the way I <clears throat> am that always made it very uh, unsafe and uncomfortable to express and feel emotion. However, I think one of the cool aspects of Mormonism is like, story is a safe place to be emotional. When people get up and bear their testimonies or they give a talk, it's always when they're telling stories that it was okay for a guy to get emotional and cry. And if he was crying, man, that was the spirit that was testifying. So I think from there being very little, I always connected with stories on an emotional level that didn't feel safe to be emotional about reality. Um, And that was one of the earliest things um, that I saw in X-Men and in comics were these stories that were obviously about fantastical things and, and elements, but I was able to really connect to a human level in those stories. One of the first comics I ever read was uh, Uncanny X-Men, I think it was 303, which is the death of Ileana Rasputin, which is the, she dies from the legacy virus, which was just a very powerful and obvious AIDS uh, uh, analog in the 90s. But again, I'm a little, I'm a kid who my concept of AIDS and homosexuality is just is, is gross and evil and shameful. And yet I'm, I'm understanding these concepts uh, at a very human level through comics and stories. Uh, and I think like Terry, like going into the other things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, and other media of that time, like I just identified and connected with and the, the story spoke to my soul in a way that was even more powerful than, than the stories I was ex- being ex- um, exposed to in church and other places. And Though I couldn't always put my finger on it, it just felt right. And uh, those worlds exposed me to different types of people and different ideas and different uh, concepts and, and all these things that I would have never been exposed to in a, in a fairly a kind of small sheltered life that really broadened my horizon and helped me see the humanity and other people the way that, uh, you know, the other stories I was getting didn't really uh demanda in order to keep us uh on a tighter schedule are you okay if i bypass your answer on this one and move forward is that all right with you i was gonna say really quickly i'm gonna be very quick um so my my foray into comics was female-led stories female characters so for me the reason that like a lot of like the church stories didn't make sense was because there wasn't like this female empowerment there wasn't like these female characters so that's why i think i sort of like went into that direction where there were all of these female uh characters that i could identify with and be a part of which is then what led me into drag and cosplay yeah beautiful beautiful 
I want to thank uh, thank my guests for sharing their personal stories. These are things that we are often eager to talk about as ex Mormons because it's such a huge part of us. And I know you're all safe because you've talked about it before. Uh, but also, you know, sharing in this space, I hope it's enlightening for uh, listeners at the same time. Uh, this is a journey for each of us, and I think everybody listening can probably relate to that in some way. Now, one of the interesting things is we always want to find community. When I left Mormonism, I needed a community to belong to, and the queer community was a huge part of that. And queer and trans people and even post-Mormons and people of color and people from different ethnic statuses, we want to find spaces where we feel understood and seen and valued. And there have always been gayberhoods. And this is something that is uh, hugely uh, emphasized in the X-Men comics is this constant search for home, which is also the uh, the kind of biblical story, right? We're looking for the Zion or the promised land or that space that we've been promised. And, you know, we've, we're seeing that with Krakoa, we've seen it with Utopia, and with Avalon, and all these other spaces, uh, primarily Grey Malkin Lane, which is why we named this show that, uh, that name. So there's this idea of search for home, and this is something we're going to see. Now, we've been able to focus on Magneto. Oh, oh, before we go forward, I have prepared something really quickly. Can any of you name a Mormon Marvel Comics character? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know there is one, but I can't remember who it is. Like, I know, I know for a fact there's one, but I can't remember who it is. I always thought that Gene DeWolf was an LDS character, but I looked it up and it wasn't true. But in my brain, that was true. The only character I know of that's been stated on the page to be Mormon is a weird Spider-Man character named Jacob, Jacob Raven. So go look it up. But during the 50-state initiative, the uh, Utah, every country or every state in the country got its own superhero team, and Utah had its own team. Uh, can any of you uh, recall what the name of that team was, who were never seen on panel, by the way? Oh, my God. I don't know if I want to know. U Utah <laughs> superheroes in Marvel Comics were called... The Repressed. The Called. The Called. The Called, the called as in called to serve. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hilarious. Again, as a music person, I immediately like jumped right into the song in my head. <laughs> <laughs> we also have reference in an old Ringo Kids story about him interacting with a group of Mormon settlers in the 1800s. Uh, we see Utah a ton in the comics. There, you know, it's like a frequent setting for Wolverine or Hulk or like secret base stories, particularly like Southern Utah, which is interesting. And the She-Hulk character Mallory Book is uh, canonically a former Miss Utah, which is amazing. <laughs> so there's, a, there's some random facts for you today. Oh, what? Uh, okay. okay, we've been exploring Magneto on the show, and we're we're uh, doing six episodes this month all about escalating areas from his past. Episode one was all about concentration camp. Episode two was about him discovering he was a mutant and being a father. Episode three, about him as a Nazi hunter. Episode four is today. And this one is all about kind of messianic, uh, Magneto, who has a very dramatic flair and a lot of self-exposition and large speeches. Uh, he uh, he gets his costume for the first time canonically in this issue, which is fascinating. And uh, you get to see the kind of showy, flashy side of Magneto today. We're also going to have some talk about Magneto as Messiah today a little bit as well, which is a really interesting thing, but I'll save that for just a minute. So we're going to be reviewing Magneto. It's officially called Volume 2, Number 1. This is a 2011 story called First X-Men in Brooklyn, 
And it is uh, written and drawn by Howard Chaikin, who's doing a lot of like old timey Marvel stuff through this time, like uh, Dominic Fortune and Avengers 1959. The colorist here is uh, Edgar, uh, Edgar Delgado with Jeff Eckleberry on letters and Sebastian Gurner on edits. This is a really interesting story. It's uh, it's written in 2011 in March. So it's being put out at the same time that the X-Men first class movie was coming out. And you you get the idea that they were doing several one shots here. Uh, Jordan White is thanked in this book. I emailed him about it, but I did not hear back. Uh, so I'll, I'll include any comments I get from him. Uh, in the main book, they are on Utopia in the middle of the quarantine story. This is also like right when Age of X is happening, for those of you that fondly remember that. There were a couple of other X-Men one-shots that came out around the same time. One called Marvel Girl uh, by uh, Joshua Hale-Fialkov, who I have had on my show before. We talked about that book briefly. There was a book called Cyclops by Lee Black and one called Angel Iceman by Brian Clevenger. And all of these are set in the past, like, 60s era of the X-Men, but none of them are considered canon because they don't match the continuity well enough. So these are not books that I will end up reviewing on my show. But the Magneto book is considered canon. Primarily because of there's nothing to contradict anything, but also we have the character Cassandra Michaels introduced today who has appeared in a Krakoa story, which uh, ties these two books together as well. So we're going to get into this book in just a moment, but let me hear your thoughts quickly on what you thought of uh, visiting this issue. Is this a comic you guys had seen before? It's not anything I've seen before. Um, I wouldn't I'm <clears throat> pivoting a little bit from Magneto Testament. It's a little bit of a, a weird tonal shift to know you know, the events are not too far removed from each other in Eric's uh, chronology. So, yeah, you got to hear uh, you got to hear Philip and I talk about Magneto Testament a few weeks back. Ooh, ooh, that's a different read. <laughs> so I, I knew this book existed. So uh, the Utopia era was um, sort of like a renaissance for me where like I had started collecting weeklies again. So like I knew this story existed, but I knew it really didn't affect anything that was going on so i didn't pick it up at the time but reading it now i'm kind of like it, it is kind of fun to have magneto be like kind of fun but it also is so like this is not the sort of magneto that you were sort of like taught to think of like this was his like journey from concentration camp to like wannabe world dominator like this is so like light-hearted it's such a weird yeah, like, almost everything I love about this book is stuff that I do not think Howard Chaikin intended at all to be part of the story. But the way it fits into his wider character arc, which was, I don't think, the intention of the book, is almost my favorite. Uh, uh, Philip and Terry, had you been familiar with this before? I hadn't read this, heard of it, anything. So it was very interesting to dive into. If we're fitting this into the continuity, uh, and I'll do this game for just a moment, where we stack it all up, and again, this isn't intended, I believe this story would take place shortly after Uncanny X-Men 161, the flashback where Xavier and Magneto battle Baron Strucker and Hydra, and Magneto uh, separates paths with Xavier and takes the Nazi gold away. Uh, because Xavier was still walking in that story. So Xavier was also still walking when Moira McTaggart first approached him as seen in House of X, Powers of X, and he gave her kind of the dream. Then later, we see Moira and Xavier visiting Magneto in his costume on the isolated Island M, and that's where they bring him over to their cause. And there's also the later plan that they're each going to father a child that they will need in the future, right? So Magneto fathers Polaris through Susanna Dane at some point in this history. Moira chooses to have uh, uh, Proteus. 
But Xavier would have already met Gabrielle Haller at this point because of the Nazi gold story I just referenced. So I believe this story comfortably fits in in between all of that. Uh, so there's the continuity part if anyone's trying to place this issue. Uh, does anyone have questions or any comments on that? What? A sort of, <laughs> and, and what a sort of like just random like spot. Again, he's, he's like, okay, I've been pulled into this plot. Let me go visit Brooklyn and like <laughs> just hang out for the day. It's so, it's so weird. Well, he heard about a mutant community, so he came to investigate. Yeah. The gayborhood had formed. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on uh, on the continuity of it all before we jump into the issue? He says in the beginning, isn't this the first time he's visited America? Or did yes. I read that? Okay. Yeah, yes. so it's it's an interesting, like, I'm going to America for the first time story, so... Yeah, and, and and also they mention the taxi driver mentions that he still has like a very heavy European accent, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, it's, it's, uh, again uh, hearing Magneto not with like Ian McKellen's voice uh, or <laughs> or like the animated series voice is so weird to like think of him with like a sort of like heavy Eastern like Polish accent. Yeah, or it's like he sounds strange. more like Nightcrawler almost. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Terry, any thoughts on continuity before we jump in? Not really, no. Okay. I just, I just, <laughs> it's a I fun just game to play. Issue, like, what? Okay. <laughs> uh, this issue has a very famous uh, art piece done by Roger Cruz. It's Magneto, uh, you just in full force, one leg bent. He's doing a little ballet pose in the air as his hands glow. You'll see this image, and it's a, it's a really beautiful cover. Any thoughts on this cover? I kind of go back to this question of like, not all artists can draw covers, and that's totally fine. Uh, and then not like this Roger Cruz cover isn't bad, but you've got Howard Chaikin on the book, who's like a world-class designer and illustrator. Why don't you have him do a cool cover instead of the pretty but fairly generic cover they ended up with? It, it baffles me sometimes. Cover rates versus interior rates. Uh, yeah, you never know quite what this what the scenario is. But, but, but also, like in the story, he do- he doesn't have his helmet yet. Like he's just getting the costume. But I'm wondering if they're going for a uh, this story could potentially be something that's going on right now in the books because Magneto was on Utopia. And, and yeah, this I know uh, this this is pretty clearly set in the past, but the cover. Well, well, well no, but I'm, I'm talking about like just from the cover, like yeah, from yeah, yeah. a person walking into a comic book shop, like going, "Oh, what's the story about Magneto? Cool, I'm gonna grab this too." So Magneto, as I said, has a big flair for the dramatic. And I want to spend just a moment on the concept of Magneto as Messiah, which is something we'll be talking a lot about this uh, uh, on this show later. We, we've talked a lot about Magneto, Claremont's interpretation of Magneto being based on Menachem Begin. We have the Malcolm X debate that's often used by people. But there's this idea of Magneto as Messiah, which is something he's literally called when he has a group of acolytes or religious mutants following him. He's been the leader of a nation, both in Krakoa and in Genosha. He's a worldwide threat. He's had international trials uh, dedicated to him. He's also a mass murderer. There's the commentary on Magneto as Hitler, who, as uncomfortable as it is, is also a messianic figure. And there's also the one thing, and uh, Philip and I talked about this in the Testament episode, 
The one thing that's so fascinating is we have Magneto as a Jew, which is not something that's ever been explored, what that religion means to him or his family. We only know Magneto as a concentration camp survivor. That's the origin. But there's not a lot about him being a Jew ever explored in the comics. He's clearly a religious-minded person, but the Jewish culture has a lot to do with the belief in Messiah, which is something he then proclaims himself to be. And that story, when you divide it out from someone like Exodus, who also has this kind of messianic obsession, but their backgrounds are so different. So the interpretation of what that means is entirely different at the same time. Uh, we get to see a little bit of that hinted in this very egotistical, maniacal, narcissistic kind of showman that we see in this book. Uh, any thoughts on this? It is interesting of the so Magneto as as a Jewish person because again it's it even though it he it's it's a big part of his sort of survival story meaning that like you know he's a concentration camp survivor I think the only time I remember really like being like oh yeah Magneto is Jewish is when he accidentally thinks that he kills Kitty who we who, who is definitely a very Jewish character and like that sort of like sort of sparks him to like feel bad even though he's killed many 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 people otherwise um so it it is interesting and the way that he sort of like takes like the idea of that religion and then puts it into like his own sort of life. Like he he's not like, oh yes, I'm Jewish. It's like, no, I, I think I am the Messiah, but not necessarily the Messiah of Jewish texts, but like the Messiah of this actual planet. Yeah, would we say Magneto was right? There's a lot baked into it when you consider <laughs> the crazy side of this band. <laughs> and I think tying into the Mormonism at all, another belief we don't have time to get into or explain because it's insane. Uh, there's a certain uh idea in mormonism that mormons are are jews also that like they have inherited that mantle of the house of israel because of a million things um but you know uh, there's a there's a certain messianic nature of the leaders of mormonism joseph smith being the first one um and i'm not going to compare joseph smith to magneto magneto's <laughs> done far more right than joseph smith ever did um <laughs> But yeah, there's the, you know, the anytime you have a figure who who claims or acts in a manner of Messiah, it automatically opens up for all the problems where egotism and, and narcissism take over. And that's one of the things I really like about, especially recently, Kieran Gillen's exploration of Exodus is Exodus is feels his role is to usher in and protect and open the way for the Messiah, which I find is a far more interesting uh, and fascinating approach to then just uh, any other character being like, I'm the Messiah. Exodus is like, no, my purpose here is to pave the way and protect a Messiah. And in this current story, I believe he still feels its hope. I don't know why I'm a couple issues behind, but... <laughs> there's there's a, a white exploration that still needs to happen about uh, the Messiah complex in a lot of characters. But it's fascinating to see people who proclaim themselves to be Messiah. Xavier doesn't do it, but Apocalypse and, uh, and Magneto kind of do. And these are the three nation heads of Krakoa, right? The formation for nations, because they're all doing pro-mutant, but in different ways. But now the real Messiah is Hope Summers, whose power is to 
take what you're doing and do it better, but also make everybody join together. And it's like the young generation commentary that we won't get into at all. There's also a mention of uh, the idea of the mutant homeland as a Jerusalem comparison, but we'll get that. We'll get into that on my show uh, another time as well. Okay, for sake of time, we got to jump into this issue, but there's a lot of really fascinating things to talk about here. Uh, so thanks everybody for sharing. Uh, I'm going to take the first few pages here. We see gorgeous work by Howard Chaikin through the whole issue. He draws he draws his sequentials uh, in such a beautiful way. I almost love it more than his action stuff, but he's he's just a, a really talented artist. I really enjoy his work consistently, and there's a signature style for him. Uh, Magneto is arriving in New York City for the first time. I'm going to use my accent. He says, I remember it as if it were only yesterday. It was early autumn, the weather crisp and beautiful, the perfect day for my first visit to New York. He lands in New York City, and he uses the name Michael Xavier to enter the country, uh, using his magnetic powers to change the computer so that it will look like he uh, he was there the whole time. So it's cute that he's using his boyfriend's name here. I think that's sweet on his first visit to uh, Charles's homeland. Is, said, is, is, it, is it Michael Xavier the name he eventually uses when he becomes the headmaster yes he, he this is an alias that's given and again i don't think shaken intended to draw that parallel but it's really funny <laughs> he said i had to assume assume that charles wouldn't mind my borrowing his name for just this little while and really now i wouldn't care if he did i'd spent my entire life in europe making my way alone across the continent from the time I was a boy, a fox among hens, a wolf among sheep. But I have to say, after transgressing the borders of the old world, even I found the shuddering clamor of the new world a bit intimidating. But one must recall, of course, that I was very young at the time. And yes, there was a thrill at this sudden flux of men above men, and to wonder in the inevitable war to come, whether they'd be allies or adversaries. And we see him getting into a cab, and he sees the human torch, which must be like the old human torch uh like the the android one from world war ii because this would have been a long time before johnny storm was around uh i don't know i don't know exactly what the placement of that character in this chronology was uh the cabbie drives him to brooklyn and is like are you sure you want to go to brooklyn and he's very new york because magneto has heard of a secret mutant society in this area in brooklyn and he says while these so-called superheroes brazenly presented themselves to the world those like me concealed their gifts from humanity, and according to rumors, gathered in this neighborhood to create a ghetto, an invisible enclave of homo superior, under the very noses of unsuspecting humankind. I clearly remember marveling at what astonishing energy must have been naturally emitted by this community. And it's really interesting that Chaikin chose the word ghetto to describe the mutant community, given that Magneto lived with his family in an actual segregated ghetto during World War II. But it's a, it's a gayborhood. It's cute. Uh, uh, Demanda, do you want to take us into the next section of the book? Tell us what happens. Sure. So uh, Magneto uses his powers to travel through the sewers, and we get a glimpse of a weird demon hand coming out of the water. Um, again, foreshadowing. Don't worry about it. It'll happen later. But but we see that there's something living in the sewers as he's uh, traveling through. A, a mutant is slowly gathering material to build a monster with. That's, that's kind of a theme through the book. But yeah, keep going. Sure. <laughs> um... Um, so, so, so again, we're we're still. It's never quite made sure who this mutant is that's pulling together to make this monster. I just assume it's the Dark Beast because Henry McCoy is terrible. <laughs> um, so, uh, as as he's uh, walking through the city, he goes to a cute little diner and he sees that there's a um, there's a family there 
and the little the this family is ordering things and they're saying that the food could be cold and the, one of the girls um that they that they have is saying oh well i can i can heat it up with just a wave of my hand and magneto just sort of goes oh yeah see this little girl is trying to use her powers but the parents are like oh don't really do that in public well there's also a waitress named maureen here who's telekinetically serving them the plates it's kind of subtle but what he's getting at is there's mutants being mutant out in this restaurant which is called the golden cup which is also demanda martini's favorite gay club You're so rude. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Mag- Ma- uh, as Magneto leaves, he I, it, I guess it's intended that he magnetically leaves the coins on the counter and that he can't, the the, the chef can't lift them up off the counter. Yes, Again, yeah. Like, what a, what a dumb thing, but whatever. So <laughs> he eventually goes to uh, Cassandra Michaels' uh, shop, which she has there, Cassandra's fine tailoring. Yes, and she is using her powers to create his his iconic costume. Um, It is interesting, and so also earlier Magneto's like, I was very young then. Magneto, again, sliding time scale be damned, Magneto is still an old man (laughs) like at this time in his (laughs) continuity. Like he gets rejuvenated later with, you know, the whole... Where McTaggart, uh, the mutant alpha, blah, 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 nonsense. So he's still very much an older man at this period. Uh, because he has, again, I assume, two at least teenage children by this point. Well, I, I'm sorry, cotton, continuity-wise, I know that they're no longer his children. But, like, yeah. still, if, to, to, to make all of the stories make sense... Pietro and Wanda have definitely been around. At He's between point. thirty and seventy years old in this <laughs> uh, in this issue, and he he goes to this woman, Cassandra Michaels, who gives me a lot of like Janet Van Dyne energy. She's got Very... like the cute little like cut bob. She's dressed in like a black uh, strapless shirt uh, with stripes and black pants and heels. She is running a business as a mutant in a community. Uh, Cassandra's fine tailoring. And Magneto's very first thing is he walks into this woman and he's like, let me teach you how you could be a better kind of mutant. Like, she right. goes, I don't like your right. tone, mister. What were your and, thoughts on Cassandra Michaels? Because she's amazing. So so I love her, of course. She's she's a sassy, a, a sassy woman. Um, but also she's like, uh, sir, I already own a business and run a business perfectly well. Thank you so much. Um, but Magneto is still hot. Uh, and charismatic, so she's like, mm, yeah, we, I, I'm, I'm seeing what you're putting down. But she also uses, and again, it's like the weird dated references because we're trying to like put this in the past, where she says that he's talking a lot of jive or nonsense, and <laughs> it's, uh, it's very, it's very, very, but, but, she, but she, she is a lot of fun, and I think, I think those are all the pages that I'm supposed to. Cover. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Um, um, do you want to? But no, but I, oh, I love her. I, 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 I think she's fun. Uh, Philip, do you want to keep us going? Yes, we flash back to the sewer where this uh, creature is just gathering all pieces and portions, including rats, and getting bigger. Um, We move forward to a restaurant where um, Magneto and Cassandra are out for dinner. Um, And there's kind of conversation and flirting back and forth. He's using his mutant powers 
to do something. I'm like, what? Just waving his fingers over a bowl. I was like, is there iron shavings in that bowl? Yeah, I he like know. weaponized sugar for a second. I don't know what. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some of his power is like his power set is a little like wibbly wobbly in this issue. Um, but there is kind of conversation back and forth, and it's fun to see Magneto in kind of like this flirty playboy esque like feeling himself era of Magneto coming. <laughs> straight off Nazi hunter Magneto before he becomes megalomaniac Magneto. Apparently he had like a, a John Hamm moment here. Um, uh, we go back to the sewer. The creature has now assembled itself into something uh, large and monstrous. Um, and as we move kind of down the street, as they're leaving their date, uh, this creature busts out of the ground to come so to let me Let me read Magneto's caption as the creature's forming. He's talking yeah. about Cassandra. He says, needless to say, I was hopelessly smitten. And who could blame me? Lest you think otherwise, let me assure you I was and am a man of the world and no stranger to beautiful women, sapien or superior. But Cassandra was something completely new and utterly different. Brash and self-assured, yes, but deeply feminine, confident, yet modestly secure and comfortable with herself. Perhaps this is what it means to be a mutant in America. This speech is amazing for Magneto. But, but it also like totally goes into like Magneto's type, especially like in more modern comics. Like he had a thing with the Wasp for a while. There's like the on again, off again thing with Rogue. Rash like, and self-assured, yes, but deeply feminine and confident. He and, has and the type. Thing is, that's all three of them right there. <laughs> and he and he ascribes those like qualities of a woman to being a mutant, which is a little bit kind of telling about Magneto. It's like, ah, only only a female mutant could have these qualities. <laughs> but he, he's known women both sapien and superior. <laughs> Leave Foresters on that list. <laughs> uh, yeah, also, yeah. rash and self-assured. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, just the quick summary of those as we're kind of getting our way through that. It, it's just, yeah, it's again, tonally, it's a little weird for Magneto, especially where he heel turns here at the very end, but it's like, it's fun. It's pleasant. I love, obviously, Howard Chicken's art in this is really, really great. There's also a moment where uh, Cassandra has like, she's kind of flirting and she says, you seem to have an almost boyish desire to deck yourself out in the costume that I created for you. <laughs> Which again, this man has a flair for the dramatic. The dialogue in this is actually quite delightful. Uh, Terry, walk us through the, the last few pages. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, a this giant like, monster, monster has burst from the sewer. Yeah. An unintended consequence um, of the mutant ghetto, Magneto says. He calls it an abomination, which I think is kind of rude. Like, <laughs> you're supposed to be, like, Mr. Mutant, like, savior. And you're like, hmm, gross. Um, so that's a little bit strange. But the thing that I enjoyed was that as this monster, like, attacks, I guess, suddenly he's in his costume. Like, <laughs> he's, like, not in his date outfit anymore. He's just, like, at the top of page, I don't know, uh, is that 18 or something, 19? He's just suddenly in his costume he like took um, his coat off and had the costume underneath and do you notice yes. when he yells you abomination i will require your undivided attention before i can sign you to oblivion and he's smiling he's having so much fun by fighting this monster in front of the girl he likes it's really cute <laughs> yeah I th there's definitely a an element of like trying to i don't know show off for her i guess which is kind of funny um he then, like, there's several panels that I think are kind of fun where it shows his powers, like, being used in different ways, kind of. Um, and that's sort of combined with um, longer panels of 
um, him and the creature. So I thought that was kind of fun. Um, he says that um, he was certainly playing to Cassandra, but he also says, but perhaps it was. Oh, let me, let me actually read this speech really quickly. As he's fighting the monster, he says, uh, the, the captions say, all right, all right, I'll admit it. I am blessed, or perhaps I'm cursed with a gift for the dramatic, not to say melodramatic. And I was certainly playing to Cassandra, but perhaps it was the costume. It was, after all, the first time I'd worn it, and thus the first time that Eric Magnus became Magneto. Not yet the Magneto who would strike terror into the hearts of men, of course. The Magneto whose very name would soon make the world tremble in fear. But for this brief forgotten moment, another Magneto, a Magneto you might never be used, who might never be used to frighten children away from sullen misbehavior. A Magneto to be admired rather than feared. A superhero of all things. So it's uh, it's almost him flirting with the idea of launching himself as a superhero, which is fascinating again for this character. <clears throat> yeah, during this whole speech, um, what's happening is that it, I think that he's been using these like construction beams to secure this creature but it also ends up like wiping him out i guess he like falls over um cassandra screams his name you know runs over to him he says that he's i'm quite all right my dear is what he says um but then they have a moment where they um that i found interesting where cassandra mentions um well, Magneto says, I must say, I expected one of your superheroes to come to the rescue. <laughs> and she says, maybe in Manhattan, girl, but this is Brooklyn. <laughs> like, it's just kind of weird. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, okay. Um, this whole issue is very strange for me because New York City is where I um, did my mission. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then this issue sort of, it gets to the point where there's like a nice panel of him um hold, like holding her kind of they're like kind of like a nice little i don't know drawing whatever um he gets like a little bit fresh with her close to her um and that ends up what i find strange that it ends up backfiring because she says something to him and his response well she basically says that he has an adolescent attitude i don't know how things are like going south now but he proceeds to then threaten her and says let me find it. He says, careful, Cassandra. I'm not accustomed to being spoken to in this way. Um, which is like, what? careful what? Like, what are you going to do? Well, um, so right before that, he basically is inviting her to come with him. And she's like, "Um, I yeah. barely know you. And he, he immediately goes, you know me well enough to expect me to use my mutant gifts and to save you and your timid and ungrateful friends and neighbors. And then she goes, and right there, the downside of that boyish nature, that adolescent attitude that thinks it's entitled to whatever it desires. And that's what he says, careful, I'm not accustomed to being spoken to in this way. The women I yell at normally don't talk back is the vibe he's giving here. It's very uncomfortable. If I had written this, I would have had her been like, cool, thanks for the date. <laughs> Just like walk away. <laughs> Like, great date, bye. Yeah, this um, is a bad date for Cassandra. Don't go out with your clients, babe. Yeah. Um, she says, maybe you want to develop a little thicker skin to go with your new superhero suit. Um, and that's pretty much where it ends. Because she tells him something about, like, um, if you don't develop a thicker skin, 
you're not going to end up being anybody's hero. And he has this inner monologue that's like, truer words were never spoken. And then you know? he flips his um, gaze so hard and like calmly walks away in the other direction. Like, you can't, you can't dump me. I dumped you first. It's, it's, it's giving very that Will and Grace episode where he's trying to tell Grace that she's overdramatic like her mother. And she's like, I am not the star. And like throws her <laughs> scarf over and leaves. It's very that where he's like, I don't know what you mean. Cool. <sighs> And just like yep. walks away. It's also straight boy, like, I did this nice thing for you and now you don't want to sleep with me? Like energy. Right. Yeah. He's like, I paid I paid for dinner and I saved your life from this monster. And <laughs> we're not fucking. What's going on? So canonically, Cassandra I... Michaels is the tailor of the Magneto suit. And she what? has been brought back on Krakoa in X-Men Unlimited Infinity, comic number 55. By Steve Fox, she is working on Krakoa as a tailor with Jumbo Carnation and presumably Stitch. We've only seen her twice. She's basically wearing the same clothes. <laughs> but I love her. I, I would love to see more of this but character. I, I love that. I love that Steve Fox is like, let me pick, again, uh, true to my heart, let me pick this one character who appeared in one issue, and I'm going to bring him back wearing the same exact clothes that they wore <laughs> in that one issue. I mean, if she designs clothes, she's got she's got to have a specific signature look, right? I'm thinking about fashion designers who pretty much wear a uniform, right? Mm-hmm. Like they they do that, like, uh, and costume designers too, like Edith Head and whatever. So I just find that to be kind of interesting and like, yeah, of course she'd wear the same thing. I'm a little lost on what her actual powers are. Because she just she like showed like this, making a magic costume. Yeah, I think she's a little bit like the character Skeen, formerly Gypsy Moth, where she can manipulate thread, but Skeen will, like, rip it apart, and you get the idea that Cassandra Michaels can manipulate material and weave well, it together. I'm wondering whether or not he she has powers more akin to, like, Silkworm, who was um, a Warpy from the Warpies era of Excalibur. He's the one that gave Nightcrawler that, like, updated version of his costume that had, like, more, like, rounded shoulders by Alan Davis. He literally just sort of like touches uh, Nightcrawler all over and it just like morphs into a different suit. Uh, Imagine Cassandra on, on Drag Race when they're like, do you know how to sew? And she's like, no. She's like, it's fine. I got it. <laughs> as someone who, as someone who introduced another that Marvel fashion designer to Marvel, I'm curious, like, because Cassandra and Jumbo Carnation and my character Julian are the only three I really know of. And I was curious if anybody knew of any, I mean, besides Janet, I guess, Janet Van Dyne. Um, there are there are a few characters in other factions that are known as costume designers. Uh, the one that comes to mind first is the old Daredevil villain, uh, Gladiator, the guy that has like the buzz saws on his hands. When he first appears, he uh, he's a fashion That's designer. A uh, and then he goes nuts, right? Uh, there's a few others. There's one that's associated with the comics a few years ago that kept showing up in uh, a number of different books where characters would go get new looks from her. I cannot name remember the name of the character. It was like Big Ronnie or something. Uh, it was a woman who was designing a lot of suits. And I do think there's a few others in Marvel's history, but uh, certainly not as fabulous as these. Um, if I, I remember her... right, I think Tim Gunn was canonically introduced in an Iron Man comic yeah. years ago. So there's that one. <laughs> I would love for um, like the opportunity to write like Julian gets 
the like jumbo carnation mentorship whatever <laughs> accepted into that program holy shit i can't believe i remembered this character's name is big ronnie so look up big ronnie the fashion designer i i okay. am i'm impressed with myself for remembering that right now. <laughs> big ronnie big ronnie uh okay we're gonna wrap up here today's episode has been silly and fun and liberating and kind of sharing uh truth I, uh, I appreciate the community and the friendship that each of you offer. I would uh, I would love to invite you all back to the show again very soon because I love you very much, which is why I keep inviting you back. Uh, so as we're as we're wrapping up, uh, uh, let let me hear any of your final thoughts on Magneto in this issue, and then let people know where they can find you online and uh, plug anything you would like to plug. Recognizing we're putting this episode out on October sixteenth, uh, Terry, would you go first? Sure. Um, my thoughts on this issue, I guess more, they're the more pretty general in terms of like the, I, I like the idea now of reading more stories um, where Magneto's religious identity um, informs this like savior. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say complex, but like identity that he has. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's um, kind of what I've left with. I like the introduction of Cassandra. I think she's fun. Um, and I do feel that the thing I was left with the most reading this issue was um, the convincing and beautiful way that New York City is um, portrayed, like in, in the artwork. So that was really nice. Um, I guess you can find me. I, they said in art school to be easy to find. So I'm just Terry Blass on like all the socials at terryblass.com. Um, I believe when this comes out, you will be able to go pick up a new issue of The Scarlet Witch, which I did not write, but features um, Ava Quintero, my character who I introduced in Reptile. Yay! So check that out. Go support Steve uh, Orlando, who wrote that issue. Um, and yeah, I guess check out my work on my website. Uh, I have one final Magneto thought I forgot to share. I got to say it quick or I'll forget. Magneto goes to find mutant society in America and he finds it and it's kind of going okay but then he's like oh this girl doesn't like me and nobody like hailed me as the messiah here so he literally leaves and is like fine i'll go live on an island by myself like his his reaction to this mutant community is bizarre <laughs> okay demanda you go next so uh yeah this this is such a weird like little pocket of of magneto's uh like whole like sort of arc because like from this he then becomes like megalomaniac crazy person it's like it's wild what a lovely and layered and complex person magneto is um so i just want to say i apologize to those of you on this thing i usually do come in drag to these podcasts uh but um i did however i do have all of the things available to do a dragnito look so by the time this issue or this uh, episode airs i will probably be posting pictures of it i have i have this magneto helmet made from when i did bride polaris yes um, and everyone at DragonCon kept calling me Dragnito. So um, I will officially do like a Dragnito look for you all. Um, but you guys can find me across all social media at Demanda Martini. Um, everywhere I'm on the blue sky now, whatever that means. Um, but yeah, come come find me, follow me. Uh, by October, um, I do have some cabarets um, that will be coming up uh, af after that. Uh, but the big thing after... 
October is I will be at Farpoint Convention uh, with my uh, regular drag show. Um, and then in March, I will be at WonderCon uh, in California. So hopefully I can see some of you all in person uh, because everything before that is like uh, when I'm going to be hanging out with Chad in Utah. Um, but yes. That will already be over. So. I'm excited to see you. Uh, thanks, Amanda, for coming on the show today, and Terry as well. Uh, uh, Philip, would you like to go next? Uh, yeah, I think it. I my thought for this issue is like I wish this was a mini series, uh, so there was time to explore this area of Magneto's history and how it affected and impacted him just a little bit more. It feels like he goes from like this is a cool swinging area to like I'm going to become a megalomaniac really fast just because I don't know he got rejected by a girl. Maybe Magneto is the original incel. I don't quite I don't know. <laughs> um but yeah, no, it was fun stuff. Gorgeous art. Uh, so it was fun to read. I don't know how yeah, like uh, vital it is to know this little segment of history, but it's fun, especially bringing uh, Cassandra back recently. Um, yeah, as far as finding me, I'm at philipcv comic art on Instagram. philipcv.com is my website. I'm at philipcv on Blue Sky. If I, I think I'll keep using that. X is dead, thankfully. Um, and at this point, I will be... Nope, sorry, New York Comic Con will have already happened. So uh, I have a short story in Dark Horse's Headless Horseman Anthology, which is a Halloween one they're putting out in October. My partner and I wrote and uh, I drew a, a little fun 1980s trick-or-treating kids being shits and uh, run into all sorts of problems story. Uh, I've so got, Chris, Christy worked on that with you? She did, yeah. We co-wrote oh, that's it amazing. together. I'm excited. Yeah. It should be really great. It's, it's go, a back and hear, uh, go back and hear uh, Christy on my episode with Ryan Panagos a few weeks ago. Uh, I keep yeah. going, uh, yeah, so that will be out uh, the end of October, uh, and in early November, I have a short in the Deadpool Seven Slaughters anthology, which will be out. That I um, I'm drawing Cullen Bunn's script, and it's real fun. In fact, I'm inking one of the last pages right now, uh, as we've been recording. So forgive me for that. And um, yeah, I got a bunch of stuff on Marvel Unlimited, Edge of Venomverse Unlimited, just will have just wrapped the thing that I've been working on for the last couple of months. I don't know if it'll be out yet. It still hasn't been announced. But then I'm hopping back over to do some fun stuff with X-Men, which will be uh, uh, out shortly um, when this airs. So, yeah, that's kind of yay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's so good to see all three of you today. Thank you for coming. And again, thank you for sharing your stories. Uh, lastly, you can find Gray Malkin Lane on different accounts. Uh, I, I am using Instagram mostly these days, but I'm still on Twitter slash X. I've also got a Discord. I would love to interact more on there as I'm transitioning into new social media platforms, uh, as well as threads. Anyway, my own, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. Next episode coming out immediately after this one is going to uh, continue the Magneto month. We're going to be reviewing Professor Xavier and the X-Men number four, which is a 90s story uh, that's uh, kind of in the early brotherhood days. One of the few Magneto stories we have not covered in canon yet. Uh, on the Patreon, we're continuing Magneto coverage there as well. The new episode coming out right after this is all about the country of Santo Marco with uh, my friend Rob Salerno. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help 
Grim Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grim Malkin Lane.